Welcome to Think Aloud, where you'll hear from the people shaping arts and culture today. Join me as we consider new ideas and approach old ones from new angles to cast some light on the most exciting things happening right now in the arts. I'm Harriet Fitzschittle and I have battled my way to be here with you today, not so much through the December cold, it's a very nice day here in London, but through the South Bank Centre Christmas Market, which provides a seasonal challenge, uh, but is a wonderful place for people spotting. I think the market is one of those places that gets put on um, lots of, you know, time out roundups for things to do around Christmas, because it's full of really awkward Tinder first dates, you know, people trying to chat each other up over bratwurst and truffle mayonnaise. But we may it. It's been a busy build-up to the festive season here at Southbank Centre, not just with the excitement of the Christmas market, but Michelle Obama, who was here earlier this month. Sadly, we couldn't fit her into the schedule of Think Aloud, but she sent us our best and said that her and Barack are massive fans of the show. But don't worry, we do not need the Obamas to put on a great episode. For the second in our series of roundtables, we've gathered together three people involved in either making or presenting contemporary music, uh, contemporary classical music, new music. Don't worry, there are lots of definitions and that's one of the things we're going to be getting into in this episode. Today we have moved out of our regular haunt for the podcast, which is a very small, stuffy dressing room in the kind of like backer, <laughs> backer reaches of the Queen Elizabeth Hall. So my guests today should be delighted that we've now got this beautiful view. Um, we're in the top floor of the Royal Festival Hall, uh, looking out on this balcony to the Houses of Parliament, the London Eye and the inescapable Christmas market. I'm uh, going to go right now and introduce the guests who are with us today. Uh, first guest I have is Gillian Moore, who is the music director of the Southbank Centre and one time aspiring pop star. Am I correct in having done my prep? That was a very long time ago, my goodness. <laughs> what was the name of your band? Well, I had several bands actually, and I'm actually too embarrassed to say what the names were because, well, the two that I can remember were extremely naff, as we used to say in those days in the 80s. The mystery that will hopefully reve- be revealed by the end of the recording. Come back to, we'll come back to you on that question. Okay. <laughs> um, we've also got with us Susanna Eastman, who is the CEO of Sound & Music, which is the UK's leading arts organisation for new music. And also, as Gillian said, one of the philosophical guiding spirits behind the festival. Correct summation? <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard myself described like that before, but I, uh, I like it, although it's a lot to live up to. And it has been great, actually, talking with Gillian over these last years to really think about what a festival like this can be and say about new music at this time. Which we're going to be getting into. And the uh, last person joining us is Dai Fujikura, who is a Japanese-born, London-based, although mainly aeroplane-based, from what I could gather from our conversation before the recording, composer of contemporary classical music. And you were saying to me that you've known Julian for 20 years, almost since the start of your career. Yes, I think. My first ensemble piece played by professional was 20. 20- 21 years ago or 20 years ago I do remember State of the Nation State of Mm -hmm. Nation Festival which you directed I think with the London Symphony and I first met you indeed when you were a student of Daryl Runswick at Trinity uh, Trinity College of Music as it was then that's right I was a third year and here we are 
several decades later. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm here so are, delighted to be here. We are in a yeah, where are they now sort of podcast, and we are gathered here to get today for a general chat about music, by, but prompted by a specific event coming up in the South Bank Centre calendar, which is the launch of a new festival added to the festival roster here called Sound State. Now, Julian, I'm presuming this is in large part your baby, so. Give us the elevator pitch for the festival. What was missing in the, will we say market for festivals, the contemporary landscape for festivals uh, that you're filling? So it's the idea that lots and lots of new music happens all the time here at South Bank Centre, but it can get a bit buried because we have four resident orchestras, four associate orchestras, we have visiting ensembles and orchestras and chamber music. But we just thought it was time to shine a light on all of that and I also wanted to reflect on what was different now about the new music scene than say if I'd been doing it 10 years ago and I think there are huge differences. Well maybe that's a good place to start. What is new about the newness of new music today? Well what I'll say is if if I was presenting, um, if we were presenting a contemporary classical festival 10 years ago or 20 years ago and we said it was international. I guess the definition of international would be largely Europe and America, maybe Australia, maybe Japan, because Japan's had quite a strong contemporary music scene. But now, when we think of global, international, there's a lot from China. We have a Pakistani musician, we have a Balinese composer, Chinese composer. We have quite a lot of Eastern European and Iran and Turkey, as well as America and Europe and Britain and all of that. So it's much more global. And the other thing, of course, is the gender balance. You know, even as somebody who tried quite hard in previous decades to present as many women as possible, it was overwhelmingly male. And now it's just not possible to do that. There's no need to do that. You know, there are just so many powerful creative figures. So we don't question the fact that they are major creative figures in the world. Whereas when I started working in the 1980s in this world, it was possible for leading people to say, as they did say, there just are no good women composers. That was up for debate. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into first perhaps several definitions, which is, you know, you said contemporary classical. I know, Di, have you... If I Google you, this is kind of the, which I did. Okay. Of course. I mean, that's that's really I would not, the, the, I would the not base level of prep that I could have done for this interview. <laughs> ask, ask what that is, but yeah, what would you um, find? But, well, the first thing that comes up is you're a contemporary classical composer, so I thought you'd be the right person to begin conversation about what those two words oh. mean when put together, which is something that you've probably thought about a huge amount, other people not so much. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, um, well, I also um, I have my own music festival in Tokyo Metropolitan Theatre. And uh, there I do one day, all day new music festival, but in a completely different genre. We are aiming audience to be from the, from babies to senior, which can go really a senior in Japan. And, make, and making sure the tickets uh, uh, costs are very, very low because in Japan it's very high. So I, it was very nice uh, for us to see audience with uh, three generations from really babies, kids, sisters, brothers to grandpa is looking after the kids and then and so on. So in, a, in one concert, there are not 
half of them, maybe like a third of musicians, they are they don't read music, mm. but that's not really uh, not possible, but it's not really typical for classical contemporary music. But there are many talented people like that in new music, just the music which is new music of today. But to understand this distinction, we've got to have a sense of what classical music that is being made, made today, what that means as a phrase. What counts as classical? I mean, Leonard Bernstein, when he did these lectures on classical music for mm. TV, I think he described it as exact music. So the composer's written it down in one way, and that is basically how it has to be played. It's Susanna, <laughs> sorry to come to you, the theory. Gosh, well, classical music is something else. I, 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 so I don't talk about contemporary classical music. And in fact, I was very drawn to and interested in I was just talking about with your festival, because the reality now is that the way that people are creating and curating and producing music is, is no longer neatly defined by what was even 20 years ago the very clear sense of like there was contemporary classical music or there was improvised music um, and these were very separate things and that, that just simply isn't the case now and it's funny I remember being at a conference about three years ago in Vienna and the discussion was about classical music and the question was asked from the audience why do we call this music classical mm. as if it's dead mm. and which I think is a bit unfair because actually all music even music that already exists there's something about a creative discourse with the past which means that nothing is dead in that way but there is but classical does have connotations of the past and of hierarchies it's a latin word for for class it's like that it's like it's like class system so i it's not a word i use very often partly because i don't know i just think increasingly people are working across many different things i speak about new music that covers a really wide range of work and ever expanding Gillian, do you have a defence of the phrase? Not really. I don't like it either. <laughs> when you say contemporary music in the business, it tends to mean rock and pop and indie. And 20 years ago, when I said contemporary music, I would mean the kind of music that's in sound state. It's a sort of shifting thing. I completely agree, and this festival reflects it, that people are working across disciplines all the time and sometimes across cultures so you know Du Yun's piece clearly she's uh, Chinese lives in America collaborating with a Pakistani vocalist so she is one of many people that Susanna was talking about who's who's sort of unhampered by boundaries relaxed about genre and I guess we should be too we just have to work hard maybe before I finish my professional life I can come up with a term or maybe between us we can in a way everything is musical today isn't it from my personal point of view i find it very difficult to listen to classical classical music the idea is wonderful music but it's written 100 years ago 150 years ago and i don't live in that kind of speed in mm. life and i don't know we have second movement we have cough me between the yeah. movements and then there's a third movement, which is like dance or something. And, and, and you're not allowed to dance. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know, it's so long, the piece is so long. It's really hard. I don't, therefore, I have a problem with trying to enjoy the, those kind of music. It's quite difficult for me. Do you mean live as a live experience? Or, or, both, or, or both. Do you, So you don't listen to recordings really, of Beethoven? I, or, I do only for, I must say, I only do it for study purpose. Really? For, for no. the listener at home, we got to say that Diana looks a bit like a schoolboy who's been told off by his <laughs> teacher. <laughs> but it's, uh, I'm not telling you no, off at no, all. I'm, really, I'm just fascinated. I don't really. 
I'm absolutely fascinated. The home by is difficult because there's always a skip button. Yeah. And then I have to check my Twitter and what's going on <laughs> Facebook. I don't know. It's just, it's just, and, then, and then there's a class coming It has always a repeat. Because mm. well, I just heard that now. You know, just I was here. And in fact, many of the composers that I know, not all of them, but many of them are like Di in that they're kind of listening. I know lots of them who are listening to hip hop and listening to all kinds of yeah, things. And then, of, yeah. you know, if they are listening. And actually, I do think in terms of composers relationship with listening to other people's music it mm. is also there's a sense where there's a kind of territory around it where some things you can listen to and others are just for whatever reason particularly for in the middle of writing a piece or, or composing mm. a piece that's true so, so you see what i just did there that's i true. talked about writing a piece and yet the reality is no one's not so many people are sitting down with pencil and paper anymore although some yeah, are but many it's, are. But it's, a, it's a funny thing even pop musicians they always say oh when i'm writing this this yeah. song but again you don't read music but what did you write <laughs> but, but that, i think that becomes like kind of phrase i mm. guess yeah, yeah but i mean you don't what did you write because you don't they don't they don't the one i i know they don't read music so mm. they didn't write down the music Gillian, Susanna, this is a question I wanted to get to, but Dai's kind of been brave and offered his opinion first, which oh, okay. is, is there a genre that you struggle or have struggled to get on board with and you've had to work a bit harder? Because like you were saying, the work you both do covers so many things. Is there something that you found harder than others to relate to? So with Dai, it was traditional classical music that you, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try and do a deft evasion with this question because I think so what I would say is I can't think of a single genre of music where I kind of say I just don't get on with jazz or anything like that but I would say jazz does come to mind (laughs) (laughs) you're reading too much into it there's a lot of jazz that I love but I would say this is one of the exciting things about music is that for every person listening to something whether it's in a venue or whether it's online or whatever, every person is having a completely unique experience. They bring themselves to that encounter with the sort of listening to the music. And that might be incredibly enriching, wonderful encounter, or it might be where you just think, oh, I really don't like that. And of course I have things that I don't get on with. But what I'm not going to do is say on this podcast, I'm not going to name any names, I'm afraid. Gillian, you're going to brave an answer. Uh, I think I am genuinely omnivorous musically last night I'm just thinking last night I was making pizza in my kitchen and I had on Stravinsky Threni which I'd just heard late Stravinsky which I'd just heard live the night before and I just felt like I wanted to stay in the world of it Um, it's not exactly music to make pizza by (laughs) in the traditional sense but it was wonderful to listen to it and then I put then for a series of unconnected reasons I moved from Thraney to Sarah Vaughan to Billie Holiday to uh, Ella Fitzgerald to Oscar Peterson my son came in and put on some Oscar Peterson so you know that was last night but my daughter's hip-hop because she's obsessed with you know Stormzy and all the grime and hip-hop and all of that so and I really enjoy some of that although I wouldn't play it with my auntie in the room necessarily because all the swearing and there's a link, isn't there, between that sort of music and the sort of music that you make, for example, die. Because I read an interview with you where you were talking uh, about the idea that the sort of music you are making and the sort of music that um, what we would call, you know, contemporary composers mm-hmm. are now making filters down into more commercial pop music, for example, okay. over a period of like several decades. Mm-hmm. How yeah. do you see that happening? I think it's funny. Okay, funny. I live in London, but. Uh, 
when I go to Japan, they always ask me, somebody always ask me to give a talk, and it's never music college. Do you know what kind of sector they ask me? Each time, it's financial sectors. Really? Yeah, and they want me to talk about music. So what are they learning about? I, I have no idea why. From you about finance? I have no idea because I, I, have, I know nothing, obviously. That's why I'm doing composer. I'm being composer. So funny enough, when I talk about similar things, what you just asked me, is that uh, it's proven fact that uh, what was contemporary music whenever the time in, in history, even in the recent history, like what, 50 years ago, it's appearing in, uh, uh, in the movies or TV series and so on. Like I just watched uh, Homecomings. That's all a collection of the famous soundtracks. But some of them were Ligeti or something like that, I remember, because it was used in uh, Kubrick's movies and so on before. And uh, so what I mean is that whatever it is, that music was not written for, to make money, let's say, non-commercial music today, contemporary music, let's say, I'm sure given time, it will be the music, will, those music will be used in a commercial world in years, years later. So therefore to the business sectors. So it's not bad business and today. Are you saying so that it's particularly this theory that when you go and talk to financial institutions, they're mm -hmm. interested by? Yeah. That's they, fascinating. They, they <laughs> always... They, sometimes, but there's only one piece I have written, it's so funny, commissioned by uh, apparently the biggest insurance company in the world, like I know anything. Anyway, I've, there was one project in Switzerland, funny enough, and I did a project. I thought it was good things to talk about because in front of financial people, I do. And that was like, anyway, let's please talk about music. And more. so they really want to know about the inspirations and, and also the, the whatever I do. My aim is not to make money, obviously. But in f years, 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 years later, I don't know whether my music will make money, but the group of us doing this, creating music today, would affect or directly some of the tracks will be everybody else's everyday life so but bankers, 50 years 60 years time bankers do have souls then <laughs> well i don't know but they should you they should invest on us for 60 them. years 70 years uh, return maybe but can i ask Just i wonder if part. one of the I know, I'm, I'm still sort of like adjusting to you as sort of financial guru <laughs> no i have no idea <laughs> I why think, yeah i think you need to monetize this because yeah. clearly it's, it, this is this is amazing but i but i wonder sort of question if mm. one of the reasons they're so interesting interested in in you is there is something so inexplicable about the process of composing itself you know there's too much going on for you to think about the future there's just the process of drawing all these ideas and sort of mapping them into one thing mm. is complex enough you know people talk about creativity very loosely mm. but for me composing is the ultimate creativity because you have you know you have an idea or one or two ideas and you know they they may not be much in themselves, or they might be, but mm -hmm. there's, it's more about then what you do with them, the process of working and mm. reflection and reworking and reworking and using the material in that way. I just find it so mysterious and so fascinating mm -hmm. and sort of perplexing that people's brains can work in this way. But I always think that sound, always for me, is not just that reflects the colours and visions and that kind of thing. I, I really associate with like smells and also taste. So... I like very much music by Brahms, I do, but his music always reminds me of like second-hand bookshop. Is I mean, that a bad thing? Laugh. No, it just the smells just of second-hand bookshop. Brahms right? is definitely brown to me. I love um, Brahms, but it's definitely brown. It's got this wet, wetness, like, like a kind of second-hand bookshop, and even though it's rainy outside, but 
some of the book outside of the, the how can I say? This is the a really cult. advanced form of synesthesia, isn't it? Maybe, <laughs> but the, because it's not the color is conjure not whole obvious, scenes. Yeah, for me, it's not about genre because it's actual sound and harmony. But the sum of the music, whatever the genre it is, it, when it gives me, just me personally, gives a like bad aftertaste and things like that, I just can't deal with it. Julian, could I nothing. turn this question that you asked Di back on you about new? the newness of music and whether you're speaking to kind of concerns around you or looking to posterity and to create something that lasts forever. What do you see more of from the people making new music today? Are people more interested in what's happening around them or are people looking to create masterpieces that last 100 years? I guess I see a variety of things. I do know composers who are quite concerned with their place in the canon. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's the way that they've been trained. It's that the way that they see their place in the world. And they're very aware of every note that they write. It's got to be the greatest thing and it's got to last. Um, and then I know people who are yeah, very concerned with writing pieces that are relevant politically, things that are urgent. And then I know lots of people like Di who are just thinking, how the hell do I get the next sound down on the page? And are not thinking about anything else. So I do think it's a range. You know, I think throughout history, there's been that as well. You know, I think quite a lot of very famous pieces were pretty disposable. So, you know, Bach was li literally writing a cantata for the next Sunday in a rush to fulfill a function. And I'm sure he would be astonished if he realised they were still being done and regarded as the greatest achievement in human culture. Right, so sort of, yeah, musical historicism, that if we actually looked at the concerns of these people, they're actually just trying to be clever because their neighbour had upset them or, or making earn, or, music to respond to a war or... Or earn a living. Yeah, I mean, or just... That, you know, earn a crust. The case of Mozart, I've got to, you know, I've got to do another concerto and I've got to perform it. Yeah. I mean, that's the other, that's that's the other thing. thing that's that's the thing that one of the things that's different now. Mm. There certainly was a moment in the 19th century where composer and performer split and you got this virtuoso performer thing and the composer became a separate being. And I think we lost something actually then because the performing aspect became so unattainable and the, the composer is also losing that direct contact with his or her audience. I'm quite excited that a lot of that is being reclaimed again. And with Soundstate, there is an emphasis on, at least partially an emphasis on compositions that are, like you said, speaking to the current world that we live in. And that's kind of one of the exciting things, like music holding a mirror up. Could you kind of tell me a bit more about how that plays out in reality? What are people responding to? How do you see like this time being reflected in the music that's being put on at this festival of new music a really striking example of that i'd say is actually in the in do yun's uh, world premiere which is going to be given by the aurora orchestra with ali seti um, pakistani vocalist and the video artist khaled jarar that is a piece which do yun was very affected when she was writing this piece by the migration crisis this is something that was very urgent for her. She wanted to really express this urgency. So I think it is connecting to issues that are really urgent in the world today. Although, and I would agree with that, and 
in some ways, I think composers have always done it. And actually, so if you think about Duyon's new piece, Where We Lost Our Shadows, I, yes, it's about migration. That's a very contemporary theme, but it's also a universal theme. And it's sort of things about migration, displacement go back since humanity began. Um, but I would also say, so some composers are doing that. Others, it's a much more, uh, it's, it's a less direct relationship with it's used one for better words, but the, but they still feel very relevant and current in ways that you can't quite put your finger on. So, for example, I'm thinking of Rebecca Saunders, for example, who's a, a wonderful British composer based in Berlin, and her music's not about something in that way, but it's sort of about everything, and it is... Um, every time thinks that this time is the most complex time there's ever been but I really think this time is the most complex time the sort of challenges and threats that are being faced globally as well as on a very individual level in many parts of the world the importance of creative expression the importance of of, of art and contemporary music and of new music to sort of somehow help us emotionally to navigate these incredibly traumatic times feels stronger than ever and it's completely fine for that to be done in a way that's not direct but is also quite abstract both ways are valid it's really you know Duyan's also and her, she wrote this wonderful opera Angel's Bone which won the Pulitzer Prize in two, 2017 and it's basically about traffic it's about two angels who fall from the sky into a middle-class couple's garden. They end up trafficking them. It's a devastating, powerful, extraordinary opera, um, which I really hope someone's going to bring to the UK before too long because it's so wonderful. So looking on the website for Stan- Sand State, there's this lovely quiz you can do where you kind of put in the answers to various questions about what you're interested in, where you like to go on holiday, and it will recommend a performance that you should go to kind of based on your answers to these questions. It's really nice. I did it. It's kind of like very like BuzzFeed style. And this kind of speaks to the amount of work that goes into finding new non-specialist audiences for new music concerts. I'm interested in that as a question. I think it's something that's very easy to talk about in generalities, but maybe you could each just kind of give me a specific example of something that's been really successful in terms of getting new audiences through the door or new listeners that don't have to be physical uh, to listen to compositions that they might not normally come across. For me, some of the most some of the most interesting work I see that brings us to life, it's not a new thing, but it seems to be very energetic at the moment, is actually when composers themselves are somehow given control of curating and presenting their ideas. So, and this uh, so it's something that Sound and Music, my organisation, is very interested in and quite engaged in, because we just, I came, I came into uh, the organisation in 2012 and just immediately noticed that this was happening in many, many places. So if I think about like the multi-story orchestra in Peckham, or I think about the Bastard Assignments, or I think about Filthy Luca, these sort of artist-led, artist-curated, there's something about the power of really interesting creative people communicating their ideas, not just through their music, but, but also in how they place music alongside other music and put it in a context. Yeah. Gillian, do you have any final thoughts to add to that in terms of new audiences? I think it's partly be confident, don't apologise for it, convey your excitement about new music as part of contemporary culture. I think there are other things that we all do that can bring different people in. So, for example, we just had a concert on Friday night in the Hayward Gallery with relatively recent music. And, you know, I felt there was an audience there who 
are more of a visual art audience. But that, you know, that's one way. It's a, it's a sort of sidestepping but broadening out. But I do think in the end that just being confident about the stuff itself is the most powerful way to do it and having joy in putting on new music, never apologising. And you've got an opportunity to convey your joy now because I'd like us to end with kind of a recommendation from each of you for something in the programme. Uh, there's so much to enjoy. I'm really curious to hear Di's new flute concerto for Claire Chase. Claire Chase is the most extraordinary flute player. She's like a kind of flute goddess or something. She's incredible, the sort of range of sounds. And uh, I am very interested to hear what you and she create together. Is that a stolen your entry? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Mainly um, thank you, thank you. Yourself. But I mean, thank you. But you know, I have to say that I can't imagine my life without knowing Claire Chase because she's great flute player, sure. But it's so much more than that to me. All the inspiration and how I guess it's the American way. Also, like if you if you want to do something, you have to do it by yourself. She and her. The ensemble, International Contemporary Ensemble, who she co-founded with other people, and that my relationship with them started in 2003, that really taught me many, many things. I've been telling everybody how wonderful and amazing they are, but finally, they are here in London, and not just Claire Chase, but uh, Duyun as well, and Marcus, mm-hmm. but, uh, and we are all like friends and family in the... You know, that's my other family in America. And that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the final Sunday of Sound State that your flute concerto has its UK yeah. premiere. Oh, yeah, sure. Gillian, anything that we might miss from a casual look at the programme? There is a lot. I'd, I'd urge people to listen to the six o'clock concerts, which are called the Sound State Sessions, put on by the Park Lane Group, which is young musicians playing music by a range of contemporary composers. But I'm also particularly looking forward to, because I've had a bit of intelligence about this, a new concerto, um, which will have its world premiere on the first night, the first concert of the festival with the London Philharmonic, conducted by Marin Alsop. And it's a percussion concerto written for Colin Curry by the Scottish composer, London-based, called Helen Grime. And Colin, the soloist, I bumped into him the other night and he was so, he genuinely was really excited about it and said, I think this is really something amazing. So it's always great to hear from a performer when they they see this music. Nobody's heard it yet. And they're just feeling that it's something very, very special. So I'm looking forward to that. That's a good insider tip, like uh, betting on the horses. Yeah. Yeah. Gillian, Susanna, Di, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you in January. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks for our festive special that will be in your download feeds on Christmas Eve. Now, they say that if you have to explain why something's funny, then it's probably not. Well, we are doing away with that eminently sensible piece of advice for this episode, and we're getting comedians to reveal the secrets behind why they do what they do. Sample question. Can you have a day off from being funny? (laughs) 